Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH, your home for community radio. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Chris Maddy is looking to make New Haven and Connecticut tick. He's running for the Democratic nomination for Attorney General. And he's here in the WNHH studio to tell us all about that. Welcome, Chris. Nice to meet you. Hey, Paul. Good to meet you, too. Good Thanks for having me. From afar. How's the campaign going? It's going great. I actually just came from the Atwater Senior Center over in Fairhaven. And with folks down there. So we is that your first visit there? To that senior center? It is, yeah. Because it looks a lot different from the way it did three months ago. Is that right? At a time when senior centers are closing, and they considered closing that one in New Haven, we actually invested in New Haven a whole lot of money to modernize it. They have all, you know, it's kind of an old facility where a lot of kids used to play basketball and they have a little theater area. And they, uh, so what happened on your visit? I mean, there were, you know, there were probably about uh, 30 people in the room, uh, you know, and I gave a little talk, uh, went around, met with folks. Brought some munchkins, hung out with them, uh, and, you know, just talked a little bit about New Haven. I mean, uh, and also kind of the areas that the attorney general can focus on that might make a difference in their lives. I mean, a lot of our senior community right now are vulnerable to things like identity theft. Mm -hmm. um, Even if they're not the Facebook generation where 50 million people, we'll get to that, (laughs) identity theft. You know, a lot of them are on email and a lot of this stuff happens over the phone. And so, um, you know, we're talking about that and having a good time. The last time I could remember a competitive attorney general's nomination race where candidates actually went to Fairhaven and tried to get them interested was 1990 between Dick Blumenthal and Jay Levin, where they'd both show up at like ward committee, fish fries and things like uh-huh. that. How do you get someone interested at the grassroots retail level? Someone who's not, you know, someone's at a senior center, someone who just doesn't go to democratic ward committees. How do you get them to care who the attorney general is in a state where most people don't even realize that we have a separate chief state's attorney who does criminal law mm-hmm an attorney general who's the civil side lawyer for our state. What did you tell him at order besides I'm Chris Maddy, please vote for me? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that given the time that we're living in, a lot of people, young and old, are starting to recognize the importance of the attorney general's office and speaking out on issues of national concern. Um, so there's a certain interest that's come just from the amount of you know, publicity that surrounded some of the litigation. And it's not speaking out. As you said, it's litigation. It's litigation, We yeah. sue big pharma. We sue big banks that are ripping off people. We sue the tobacco companies right. under Dick Blumenthal. Yeah. Right. And, and now, you know, the Trump administration as well. So there's a certain amount of interest that's grown from that. Um, but, you know, a lot of people just experience trouble in their daily lives that, um, you know, they, they think the attorney general might be able to help them with. So let me just give you an example. I was at Atwater. Um, a gentleman came up to me and said, listen, I've been having the hardest problem with Humana, the insurance company, um, reimbursing me for expenses that I don't think that I should have had to pay. Um, and then I had another gentleman come up to me and said, look, you know, there's, there's some way that insurance companies are pricing insurance in Connecticut, um, that makes it seem like we pay a lot more. Is there something that, you know, the attorney general can do about that? And so, you know, people have an interest in having an advocate. I think we need a constitutional them. office to just dedicate to suing insurance companies. <laughs> Let me ask you this in all yeah. reality. Why do we need a private insurance industry in America? What benefit is there to having everyone relying on an industry whose business model is to get you to pay as much money as possible to get as little care that you're entitled to as possible? You're talking about health insurance in particular. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, I'm, I'm somebody who believes in Medicare for all um, and moving toward universal coverage uh, because I mean, the incentive for those companies is to try to honor as few of the commitments as they can, so they can make a profit and get away with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a profit. I mean, Humana. I can't think of an insurance company I've dealt with in my life that hasn't just made everybody I know nuts. 
mm. over trying to get covered for things they're supposed to be covered for. It's just a coincidence that I mentioned them, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, you're talking about um, a system that is supposed to help people get well and stay well, and their profit incentive is to do exactly the opposite. And so, you know, that's the fundamental problem we have in healthcare. Um, and I think your question is the right one. You know, should we have a healthcare system motivated primarily by profit? Obviously, uh, the answer is no. supported private evil predatory co- industry. But anyway, that, you're here to talk about running for attorney general. <laughs> it's a crowded field because the, the office is open. George Jepson is retiring. And you talk about being that or senior center. I mean, is the phrase the people's lawyer the right phrase? I mean, basically, the lawyer is supposed to represent the public and the state government. We'll get into that distinction in a little while. Um, in civil matters to protect uh, consumer interests, public interests. Is that the right way to put it? I think that's right, yeah. Okay, so you, you gave that pitch at Atwater Senior Center. Tomorrow night you're going to be going, I guess, unless the snowstorm, I think, is going to cancel it, to the Hill Management Team, one of the two Hill Management Teams we right. have in New Haven. Right. How, how do you speak differently to a crowd like that? I, you know what, I don't. You know, when I, what I mean is you're not specific, it's not just seniors on that. Yeah, but i, I got to tell you, I don't really change uh, what I talk about depending on the group that I'm in front of. I mean, part of this is always just helping people get to know you and who you are, right? So that stays the same no matter where I am. I talk to people about my background, what I've done, um, what I want to do. Um, and then, you know, what we talk about often is what the attorney general can do to make a difference in people's lives. You know, um, in New Haven in particular, we know that there's been a very active immigrant rights movement, which is important. We know that our immigrant communities are under threat. Uh, and that the what state advice do you give? Is that like sanctuary cities? If Jeff Sessions says, okay, now I'm going to include Connecticut in the crosshairs of, of governments we might defund mm-hmm. because you're not cooperating with um, detainer requests. Right. Do you step in then and give a legal opinion? Well, so if, yeah, I mean, if the state of Connecticut wanted to move more aggress- aggressively towards sanctuary state status, the attorney general would obviously, you know, render legal but we're advice not about now, the Because that, that becomes the thing. All these governments that stand up for immigrants also say that sanctuary city is, is a fungible term. It's not a term of art. So when Sessions then wants to move to defund you, they'll say the things we're doing don't actually fit a legal definition. But isn't it true we don't cooperate with the Immigrant and Customs Enforcement on sharing information about detainees who have not been found guilty of any violent offenses. Is that correct? That's true. Right now, we're not sharing So that isn't that enough grounds to be defunded by the by the Trump administration? I think that different states have gone to different extents. And so, so far, I think what the Justice Department has said that we're looking at what Connecticut is doing, um, they haven't threatened us with defunding. They have recently sued California. I saw. They want to go um, first after the ones who are in their face. Yeah. I mean, Jerry well, Brown's Ca- in their face. California was very out front. Um, and, I mean, you, th- you think about what this could mean. You know, I mean, depending on how that court case goes... You could get a ruling that says the state of California and municipalities in California have to cooperate. In, and when I say cooperate, I mean essentially assist in removing people from the country. And that's why these cases are so important. And that's why if that were to happen in Connecticut, I mean, we have the legislature in session right now. They may be moving forward on different uh, fronts in the immigration area. We need to have an attorney general who's prepared and capable of going to court. But where, what's the, your role going to be? So you're going to have to, you would be going to court to fight Jeff Sessions if they wanted to fund us? If they wanted to defund us or if they sued the state of Connecticut. Yeah. You would file that suit? Oh, yeah. And would it be your advice to the state to stick by the sanctuary policy and why? What would you well, say to people who are, do not agree with the immigrants' right movement and say, we have to follow laws in Connecticut, these are federal laws, why are you endangering our funding? What's the legal argument you give back? Well, I think the, the issue is that the state of Connecticut has authority to legislate on issues of public health and public safety. And... Um, by 
uh, requiring our local police departments to essentially report citizens to the immigration police, you are threatening our public safety because you're going to make people less likely to report crime. If they're victims of crime, they're not going to come forward. If and they, therefore, they'll be victims of crime more often. They'll be victims of crime more often. And it'll be harder to solve crimes they saw. That's right. That's the argument a lot of uh, police chiefs, I guess, in the National Police Chiefs Association, many of whom were Donald Trump supporters, have made in when they've appealed to the Justice Department not to pursue this sanctuary city defunding. They say they actually have concluded, not for ideological reasons, that their communities are safer without having local police acting as federal agents on immigration. That's right. All right, and you're listening to Chris Maddy, who's one of a whole bunch of people running for the Democratic nomination for Attorney General. And he's here on WNHH's State Line, New Haven, 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenmn.org. So, so tell us a little more about Chris Maddy. So you were originally running for governor, then you made the switch to Attorney General. And uh, you are an attorney, you used to be a U.S. attorney. Um, you were the former chief of the Financial Fraud and Public Corruption Unit, which was great as the great work of the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, getting corrupt politicians in both parties behind bars. You've taken credit for prosecuting John Rowland. I know that ruffled a few feathers over that office. People feel like it wasn't just Chris Maddy. Tell oh, me a little more about that. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, let me say, I've, I've always been, I think, very careful to point out that that case was brought uh, as a result of the hard work of postal inspectors. There was a federal prosecutor uh, who I worked closely with, who has actually a New Haven resident, Liam Brennan, who was instrumental in Former investigating federal that prosecutor, case. Yeah. yeah, he just left, yeah. Um, instrumental. In what did you learn from this? Was this the second Roland case or the first? This was the second Roland case. That's the one that blew my mind, Chris. I mean, John Roland went to jail for corruption the first time. He went to jail, disgraced governor, left office, came back. Obviously, like some other politicians we could name, believing they ever did anything wrong. But then he did it again. He did some kind of scheme to get paid with finance for campaigns and call it some other use. What was the pathology there? What was the psychology? When you were prosecuting this guy, did you guys ever stop and say, Wow, why would this guy want to go back to jail? Yeah, I, I don't know. What goes know. through the mind of a politician that he would then go back? Because it is traumatic to go to jail. What do you think with them to go back and be a serial? I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know what was going on um, in his head. I think that um, you know people who have been involved in politics a long time um, sometimes develop a, a sense of. Uh, self-importance and entitlement um and you know that results in some very bad decisions how will you avoid doing that if you're another attorney general for life oh well i first of all i don't intend to be attorney general for life <laughs> um secondly you know I'm, I'm very proud to say that i'm participating in the citizens election program uh and have have raised the money that we need to qualify i was going to ask you that you need to raise seventy five thousand dollars in small uh, donations right plus a little bit of a buffer but we we've done that and so you know that program has been instrumental in many ways, in cleaning up our politics. John Rowland was involved in a congressional campaign, so they don't have the same um, level of transparency. Um, so, you know, that, but, you know, the whole reason I'm getting into this, Paul, frankly, is because I think that our political system has grown stale, that we've had a very, you know, strong culture of incumbency in Connecticut that sometimes leads to the kind of relationships that make, you know, corruption possible. And so, you know, part of the reason I'm running is to change that. All right. And uh, so you also, um, I want to ask you, learn what else you learned from other, any other cases you took on. Because on your website, you talk about taking on special interest. You talked about gun control, which is huge right now, and gun traffickers bringing illegal out-of-state guns into Connecticut. You talked about crooked investment advisors doing some of those cases and partnering with AARP about identity theft. And you talked about the 2008 financial crisis that you supervised, what you call groundbreaking securities for protections against Wall Street traders. 
um, when they securitize home mortgages. Mm. So what did you learn from those cases? What specifically did you do in some of those cases that will be similar when you're moving from the criminal to civil case side of, of, of prosecutions and from federal to state if you become attorney general? Yeah, so let's take that last one as an example. So um, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we had uh, a team of agents and a couple of prosecutors uh, who were looking at the way residential mortgage-backed securities were being traded. Um, they spent a year basically in an office no bigger than this, uh, just looking at trades and going through trades. Um, and what they came to believe was that there was evidence that fraud was basically involved in every single transaction some of these brokers were doing. No cases had been brought about that. Um, some of the traders and the banks were confronted with this, and the response was essentially that this is just how it's done. You all don't understand this industry. This is just how it's done. And that securitization um, was you bundle a lot of loans and sell them to somebody else, or is that not? This was that? so. This was kind of in the aftermath of the financial crisis. You may remember that the government injected a lot of liquidity into the um, RMBS market in order to give it some value, and those uh, those assets were then being traded, um, including uh, with. Um, treasury-backed funds. And so when we confronted them, and when I say we, I mean, I was involved in the supervision of that case, but it was really the line prosecutors who were doing it. Um, and, and we got back an answer that was like, oh no, this is just how it's done. This is lawful. You don't get it. We didn't take that for an answer. Um, and we brought cases against them. They were the first of its kind. They went through exhaustive legal challenges. And ultimately our view of what was lawful and what should be happening was vindicated. And, and the lesson I take from that is if you're an investigator, whether you're a civil investigator or a criminal investigator, you know, you have a responsibility um, to do everything you can to ensure that, you know, you're not, the wool's not pulled over your eyes by some fancy lawyer making $3,000 an hour that you get to the truth no matter what it but is. But you're also going up against some pretty good lawyers. What's that? You're also going up some pretty sharp lawyers. Well, we got some pretty Government good lawyers. Offer, was always, oh, yeah. Government's always like a disadvantage financially what they can pay. They have to get smart people with idealism to go against the smartest of the you know, top law students yeah. who get recruited by those big firms. And we had that. You know. So that gets a little different when you're in Attorney General's office. Now, Attorney General's a profit center for the state. Mm -hmm. So when they filed George Jepson before him, um, Blumenthal won so many of these cases that I think it's 10 to 1, like what we spend on the office and what we get back mm -hmm. and what we win in these cases in addition to for justice. How will, how will pursuing those cases change? So with a criminal prosecution, you have a very high bar. A lot of times people we know do things wrong. It's very hard to convict them because you have to show intent. You have to show that you know, whether it's the commerce clause or you know, interstate commerce that was violated that makes it a federal crime. All sorts of bars that, I mean, the, the layman's perspective, because I'm just a layman, I never went to law school, is that when you have a civil case, it's easier to win. Like in the O.J. Simpson case with the family of one of the victims. You know, you can win it often in civil court, not yeah. in federal court, although you sometimes have fewer tools. What would be different when you go after predatory lenders, let's say, um, or people who are just doing financial fraud. How is that going to be different in the, in the, as a civil law firm head, as attorney general, as from federal? What's easier and what's harder? Well, I think you know, the, increasingly the model for these big cases is that you're partnering with other states. And right, we often matters. have 20 or more states. Right, and so that's really a force multiplier. Um, so you can pull your resources to have really good legal teams. You can, and, and it's only through those kind of investigations of national scope that you can actually reform industries that are national in scope. And so, you know, that's something that we did some of it, the U S attorney's office, you know, and we'd have to partner with other jurisdictions. Um, but it's really the way business is. And being is the done bar there. lower in civil suits? It is. I mean, so you can win them more easily. Well, so that in civil suits, you know, you have to basically, um, win by uh, a preponderance of the evidence. Um, and so 
you know, is it more likely than not is kind of the question, which you're right, is much lower than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But you can't put someone behind bars, but you can make them pay, theoretically. That's right. And, you know, and often, you know, these... This is often a better solution. (laughs) And and civil investigations can also run in parallel with criminal investigations, Uh and sometimes they turn into that. Um, Will you be allowed to share information with your former colleagues, or is that a no-no? When you're pursuing a case on the civil side and the U.S. attorney is pursuing something on criminal, can you guys share those? Sure, you can. I mean, you have to... there, There are certain rules that apply there, um, but oftentimes those cases are run in parallel. I was involved in that when I was at the U S attorney's office. Um, and you know, you, you have to be careful depending on, you know, what stage of the federal case, uh, is in and what information you share back and forth. Um, but oftentimes those cases are run in partnership. And there might be a difference now than when president, when president Obama was in office and the U S justice department was pursuing the kind of civil rights and, and corporate fraud cases that our state attorneys yelling on to. Now you have a, um, a federal administration that has dismantled pretty much as in the process of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, Elizabeth Warren's mm-hmm. idea that got set up that became the, the biggest fighter for consumer consumers against financial fraud. And now they have someone who wants to dismantle it in charge. Um, what is that going to mean for you? I mean, I know you, you and everyone running on the Democratic side is that saying we're going to fight Trump and we're going to take up the work at the state level that is no longer being done at the federal level on civil rights, on consumer protection, on financial fraud. And we see that nationally. But in addition to that, could we actually set up in Connecticut, maybe through the attorney general, a facsimile of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, especially since it brings in more money than it loses? Sure. I mean, I think we we are less likely to have uh, a willing partner with the main Justice Department in D.C. I think the partnership with the U.S. Attorney's Office here will continue to be strong. Um, but yes, I mean, we have uh, a consumer protection regime in Connecticut um, and that we could easily, and we have a consumer protection agency. And isn't that part of the Attorney General's Office or not? The Attorney General's Office represents uh, state agencies. No, but I also thought the consumer... And consumer protection, yeah. Yeah, part of the AG's yep. bureaucracy. It is, yeah, yep. and the AG has authority to act. I remember I used to have to go down the street to your office, but in their office to find the uh, the 990s of the nonprofits. You know? Okay, yeah, so that's right. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the things that we need to be thinking about is how do we beef up, you know, protection in the environmental arena, in the financial arena, consumer arena, in the absence of federal action, and one of the points you made earlier, which is that the attorney general's office is a profit center, is a good one. It may make sense, you know, for us to staff up appropriately. You always have to convince legislators during a budget crisis, if you invest $300,000 now, you will get $30 million a year later. Right. This right. is kind of a strike. When, when you were thinking this weekend, I mean, I don't know if you feel the same. I felt like we had a turning point this weekend in the direction of the um, Justice Department under President Trump when... Uh, the firing of Andrew McCabe and the public citing of Robert Mueller with suggestions he might be removed from the Russia probe. The revolt by career Justice Department officials on Twitter uh, against Trump. Um, what did you take from this last weekend's events, the latest turn in the relationship between the, the Trump administration and the uh, Justice Department and what that's going to mean for Connecticut and for a future attorney general? Um, well, you know, as somebody who worked at the Justice Department for years, obviously I'm I'm dismayed and I have been dismayed at what has been just a prolonged attack on the FBI, career prosecutors, uh, the integrity of the special counsel's investigation. Um, All of it seems to me to be a pretty desperate move to discredit what may ultimately be the investigation's findings. Um, And and so it's unfortunate in the sense that it goes right to uh, special counsel Mueller's investigation, but it's even more distressing because of the long-term impact it can do on our institutions. I mean, the president has a pretty loud microphone 
that he's using to convince many, many Americans that the FBI is not serving their interests, when in fact, um, all of the people at the FBI that I ever worked with were the highest integrity, hardworking, dedicated people doing the people's work. And, you know, we rely on our public institutions to be credible arbiters. Um, and Donald Trump seems to have no respect for that. So the, you know, everyone running for the Democratic nomination, not Republican, for Attorney General, um, is trying to present himself or herself as your best fighter against what's happening with the Trump era. So Claire Kindle, uh, who number, was number two at the AG's office, saying, you know, it's the women's time. Um, it's, uh, you know, you got Mike D'Agostino. I don't know if he's still in or not. Um, I don't think he's actually in yet. But is he still yeah. pursuing it? You got William Tong. Everyone's saying, I'm going to be your, your first line of defense against Trump. To what extent is that, well, everyone wants to cash in on the anger against Trump for the vote. To, how specific is that going to be in actions you can actually take as opposed to just speaking on it? Uh, I think very specific. I mean, we're already, we, the state of Connecticut, is already involved in a number of matters against the Trump administration. Um, and, and that includes both filing lawsuits, signing on to letters, um, signing on to, uh, you know, amici briefs. And so there's a lot that we can be doing. And, and in some ways, you don't know what's coming down the road next. So a lot of it yeah. is reactive. But are the main areas civil rights, environmental protection, financial fraud, and consumer protection? Yeah, I mean, those so are the four. I, I think that's right. Um, oh, and immigration. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if, just take environmental protection. You know, I mean, since the Trump administration took office, environmental protection actions have dropped by more than fifty percent. The state of Connecticut and other states have the authority to go into federal court and compel the EPA to comply with its obligations. Net neutrality, right? Um, uh, the argument is, and we've signed on to this, that the FCC didn't follow its own rulemaking process in developing the net neutrality repeal. So these are matters that will be resolved in federal court in all likelihood, um, and, and you can have a real impact. So Chris, you talk about standing up to special interests. You have been, your candidacy seems to be getting a lot of traction with labor. So you've gotten endorsements already from Machinist Union, Metal Workers Union, Painters Union, Electrical Workers Union, Healthcare Workers. You were a union organizer. And often um, unions get defined as a special interest. On the other hand, some people argue that corporations and business establishments don't get defined as a special interest. It's only when workers try to organize to counter the influence of capital that they're called a special interest somehow different or more greedy or selfish than private interests that are taking money out of people's pockets. How do you see that question? Is labor one of many special interests or is it not a special interest? Well, I don't think labor unions are special interests. I think they're nothing more than, you know, voluntary organizations of uh, workers coming together to make sure that they have health and safety standards and that they have a decent wage and a decent retirement. I mean, the the unions that you mentioned, you know, I'm very, very proud to have their support. Um, you know, most of them are out there working in the trades, representing tens of thousands of workers at places like Pratt and & Whitney and Stanley and Electric Boat. Um, they're really the backbone of the middle class. So if you want to call them a special interest, they're probably a special interest for the middle class. And I think we need a little bit more of that. Yeah. And somebody, even George Schultz of the Reagan administration, when he started dismantling union membership in this country and union rights through the breaking up of PATCO, there's a HFI controllers union, his own, uh, official economic advisor, George Schultz and the secretary of state came from the Bechtel corporation said, this is actually going too far when capital has all the power and there's no check on power and there's no representation from labor, which is a real crisis now in our country and in the world because so many, so few people are now represented by unions. There really hasn't been any check politically on the power of capital that it gets out of whack. Can I just give you an example of that? Last week, I was in Hamden at the Porcelain Company. Uh, yeah, strike there, yeah. The painters uh, are on strike there. They're making, on average, 
$13-14 an hour. Uh, no retirement. Uh, they're paying 33% of their salary in some cases in health insurance. They got a $10,000 deductible. Their last offer to the company was for a 60 cent raise. 60 cents. And they have to be out in the street picketing for 60 cents. Where does it stand now? Uh, well, uh, the last I heard was that they were still out. I, I think that they were going to be having some discussions earlier this week. But, I mean, that just shows you. Um, and that's with a labor union. They're represented. Oh, labor uh, power now. I mean, yeah. we saw it happen with Local 33 in, in New Haven, whatever you think of that um, organizing. Well, debate. I supported it. Right. I mean, but the NL National Labor Relations Board now is all pro-business, so they actually couldn't pursue contract negotiations when they won in an LRB election. That's right. Have, have you done or would you do anything that labor would not agree with as attorney general? Can you cite any way that you would quote unquote stand up to them the way you talk about standing up to other interests? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to predict what issues may come before you. Um, you know, I think when, when I talk about standing up um, to special interests, as you say, a lot of that has to do with affirmative litigation. That is when you are bringing lawsuits on behalf of the people of Connecticut against, um, you know, in many cases, corporate wrongdoers, right? Um, so, you know, you don't often find yourself, uh, as attorney general going out and suing organized labor. There wouldn't Unless be Unless you're living in Wisconsin, that. Scott yeah. Walker would probably ask you to, uh, yeah. to find um, some. So I think, you know, you have to kind of, uh, assess each issue that comes before you. Um, and so I, I couldn't say right now. Can you think of a position you have that might not be in accordance with labor? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, take some of the issues that are, um, uh, kind of ripening right now. All right. Uh, so there was recently a fiscal commission, uh, that came out and which had nobody on labor on it. And they somehow thought that it's, it's recommendations were going to get broad based appeal. So that was, that one blew my mind. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of their, one of their, one of their recommendations, um, is to strip, um, uh, retirement and benefits from collective bargaining. Now I don't agree with that. I think that, People have a right to negotiate over the terms of their employment. Um, yeah, you've also had... Uh, now, as Attorney General, you have to weigh in on, I believe it was, was Attorney General Jumpson weighed in in a way that um, he said that you have to call, you have to be a referee, and he said he thought that the, the legislature could take that step. Wasn't that the big controversy last well, session? Well, I, I think, so this last session, I think part of the issue was whether or not the legislature could take savings based on the expectation that when the contract expired, workers wouldn't be able to bargain over certain issues. Um, and I don't know precisely what uh, attorney... Was the question there that the Republicans wanted to have the legislature be able to set some of the terms of workers' benefits and that the Democrats are saying that the Constitution doesn't allow that? No, I think it was the legislature wanted to set the terms um, during the pendency of an existing contract, right? Which which would have been essentially a unilateral change in something that had already and been negotiated. And what did Jepson rule? Because I mean, Fasano, the leading Republican, took heart from Jepson's ruling. I think I think his uh, the advice he gave um, was that he saw certain legal pitfalls with that approach, um, uh, and and then suggested that uh, there might be another way to accomplish um, what the Republicans had asked about. Um, but you know, my own view is that. Um, if you're a party to a contract, uh, you cannot unilaterally change that contract. That's mm -hmm. just contracts 101, and that's frankly what some people have been proposing. And isn't there still an issue about whether collective bargaining can be done by statute rather than negotiation with management? Isn't that still one of the issues? I think that's one of the, the issues that um, the legislature will consider, whether or not 
um, they should. So Mike D'Agostino, one of the other candidates, was on here saying he would definitely give the advice as a lawyer that it cannot be done by statute because he thinks it's a social justice issue. Claire Kindle argued that on issues like that, the attorney general can't give a ruling based on what she thinks or he thinks the social justice issue is that you have to follow the law because you are the lawyer and you're giving legal advice. How do you stand on that question? Is the AG, as the people's lawyer, someone who's supposed to find a way in law to accomplish a social justice end? Or is the AG, as the people's lawyer and the government's lawyer, someone who has to give a very neutral interpretation of the law so that you're legally covered? Yeah, I'm, it depends on, you know, what the function is. So yeah, what part, is the function? part of what, you know, the attorney general is required to do is provide legal advice uh, to the legislature and the governor. That's his or her client. Um, and as a lawyer, you are obligated under the ethical rules to provide complete and comprehensive legal advice to your client. Um, and that means giving uh, an accurate assessment of the risks of a particular action. Even if it doesn't advance the social justice end. That's your, that's your obligation as a lawyer. And any, any lawyer who suggests otherwise uh, would be out of compliance with the ethical rules. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think, though, once you've provided you know, that comprehensive and accurate legal advice, you should be decisive in saying whether you think what is being proposed is lawful or not. Um, so what I don't think is helpful is, you know, providing kind of the, the, the waterfront of the legal analysis and then saying, it's up to you. We're not going to provide you an opinion on whether what you're proposing is lawful or unlawful. You should provide comprehensive legal advice and then say, your, the proposal that you are proposing, I believe, is lawful and defensible. It really comes down to what you think, what is legal advice and what is the law. So a lot of us believe, some people think you should just find a way, a, a means to an end that you want through law. And other people think that um, you have to go through original, you know, interpretation of original intent of law. That's, um, you know, Scalia. Then there are other people who feel like that's often used as a cover to get the result they want, but to drape it in what mm-hmm. they believe is an objective view of law when law is an evolving document the laws or volume of documents and the times change and that you're looking for what's the spirit of them i think in the end people try to find a way to find a truly legal way they find this in religious law too to find the outcome you want but do it in an intellectually honest way so like the malcaster decision i'm sure i'm saying his name wrong the yeah, judge yeah. who said that um that yeah. it's unconstitutional the way we fund schools in connecticut attorney general jepson gave an advice that uh that we should fight his decision and again, Claire Kendall said he had to do that because that's basic on a clear-eyed referee calling balls and strikes you with the law. Mike D'Agostino said there's a lot of room there for what outcome you'd like to have and what is the social justice intent and that he should have made it clear that we don't want to represent the state in challenging that decision, that we want to help that judge find a way in law, even if he made some errors in his original decision, as everyone acknowledges now, that two, um, and the Supreme Court overturned it, that he said we should never have gone to the Supreme Court, that, that uh, the Attorney General should not have suggested, even though he could have intellectually honestly pointed out errors in the decision, could have given an overall opinion that there's still a constitutional basis that he could have ruled on to force the legislature to more equitably fund schools. Where would you have turned on that? I think it's, it's far more complicated than that. I it's mean, really complicated. You know, the, the Mukauscher decision... Um, did certain things, uh, you know, that, that were unacceptable. I mean, it, the, the result of that decision would have been to change actually local contracts with teachers. Um, there were some parts of that decision, uh, that had to do with, um, funding for children with special needs that were highly problematic. Um, and then there was, uh, another part of the decision that determined that the way we fund education 
is unconstitutional, but according to the Supreme Court, Judge McCausher used the wrong legal standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I don't think under any circumstances the decision as written, um, the Attorney General should have simply let go into effect. I don't think that that would have been workable. I think it would have led to, um, uh, frankly, political chaos. Uh, so I think the Attorney General had an obligation to take an appeal from that. Um, but I, I also believe that in doing that, the legislature... Um, of which several people who are running for attorney general are members, uh, should have used that time and space to actually develop a comprehensive solution to the way we fund education. Because there's no question that the way we fund education is So you is think it's up to the attorney general to do that? I, I think oh, that, they should have done that while they're in the legislature. I think the legislature had an opportunity what they to do that. Like, okay. um, because part of what I think we need to recognize, and this is getting a little bit far afield from the attorney general's role, but um, you know, in order for us to truly fund education equitably, which we don't do right now. Um, children who are growing up in the north end of Hartford or in Newhallville or in the east end of Bridgeport are not getting the same educational opportunities that they that their suburban peers get. It's just a fact. In order to change that, uh, we need to build political consensus more broadly. Uh, and that happens at the legislature. Um, that's the way to get this done so you get permanent buy-in from people so we can really permanently um, make our uh, educational system more reflective of our best values. That's what I believe. And you're here listening to that on WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven, where Chris Matty, one of the candidates for the Democratic nomination for Attorney General, is telling us all about his campaign. Let me give you a mini lightning round here on some issues. All right. So um, there's been proposals every year to legalize recreational use of marijuana and the sale in Connecticut. Looks like it's not going to happen this term, but it's not going away. All our neighbors are doing it. What it would be your role of, as Attorney General in that debate and what action would you take? Um, in the debate itself, I think that, you know, you want to make sure that you're in contact with the legislature as they're considering legislation and weighing in on any, you know, legal issues relating to that legislation. Um, if for some reason, uh, the law was challenged or if Connecticut, you know, was punished by the justice department, um, then it would be the attorney general's uh, obligation to go. Are you for legal marijuana? I am in favor of, uh, legalizing and tightly regulating marijuana. What do you think is going to happen with that thing? Jeff Sessions, the attorney general is really going to call the question and start arresting people who are under state law, legally selling and buying marijuana. I think it's marijuana. very unlikely. Um, you he know, really what, hates marijuana. I think he once famously <laughs> said that he thought the Klan were good guys until he found out that they smoked pot. Um, I wasn't aware of that. That's a famous um, quoted Sessions. I think that, uh, look, I think Deep. that there are actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, strong. Let me just say this about the about this debate, um, because I was a prosecutor. I handled narcotics trafficking cases early in my career. Um, I think that there are strong public health and social justice reasons for tightly regulating but legalizing marijuana for people who are over the age of twenty one. I don't think it's uh, a revenue issue. I don't think that's a reason to do it. Um, but you know that in places uh, where marijuana has been legalized, opiate addiction and opiate deaths have gone down. Um, we have medicinal marijuana in Connecticut, but it's only available for a certain number of conditions, and it's highly expensive. Um, so making it more available would ease that for people who could use it for other palliative purposes. Um, there are social justice reasons for doing it. So um, that's all separate from the revenue, and I think that it's important for us to be sensitive in how we talk about it, um, but but that's where I stand on it. All right. Now, where do you stand on the casino issue? So. MGM wants to build a casino in Bridgeport. The latest in several decades of efforts to build a casino in Bridgeport, there was a Native American tribe. There was Donald Trump. The first time John, Joe Gannon went to jail, he was negotiating with Trump to put a 
I mean, what time went to jail? The casino there. Now MGM wants to build there. And they asked the state to pass a law to stop the Native American tribes from building, continuing with the already approved plan to build in East Windsor. And the legislature, at least a committee, cut the baby in half. They said, we're going to let the Native American tribe continue because the fear was that um, that MGM really doesn't want to build in Bridgeport. They just want to stop the tribes from building in East Windsor because that would compete with MGM's soon-to-open casino in Springfield. But they're going to let a process continue under which MGM could build in Bridgeport. What is the legal issue? Because the AG ruled that the legislature could do that, right? Jepson said they can go ahead and continue to let the tribes build because there was a question whether the tribes never got approval from certain process in the, the Interior Department, the federal government, and they thought the deadline expires, so they go ahead. He gave them the, basically the green light. You can go ahead and let them build in East Windsor, but you can also let the MGM go forward. What's your position on that? So I think that um, this is an issue that may very well come before the next attorney general, this one, or issues relating to it. Um, so I want to be careful in how I, I speak about this because um, it's a serious issue and... Um, I think any attorney general who's going to be asked to render a legal opinion on this needs to be certain that he or she has all the information in front of him. Um, but are you ducking this because of no, I'm not ducking it. Because labor has so has been pushing the MGM deal. The only reason it got this far is because Unite Here has a very good relationship with MGM in Nevada where they have very well-paying jobs for people. And they say this is going to be good for the economy and they've gotten political leaders on board. So you might have to render a decision there that labor doesn't like. But you may, depending on you know what. So what the facts you're going to need before are, you can tell us where you stand? Well, right now, well, you're asking me where I stand on whether or not it is lawful for MGM to proceed. I mean, Attorney General Jepson has said that it is lawful for the legislation that the um, legislature is considering to move forward. Um, I don't have all the information that he had before him, so I would defer to his judgment on that. Okay. Um, I assume, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him and I have a lot of respect for the lawyers that work for him. So I assume that that's valid legal advice. But what I, what I want to be careful about is, um, not putting the office of the attorney general in a, in an untenable position by rendering an opinion right now gotcha. before I even take the office. So you don't want to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg slamming Trump before he's elected <laughs> and then having to make a decision. on. <laughs> no, his I, have, I have a lot of respect for the notorious RBG. So in college you worked as a high school teacher on a Navajo reservation, helping impoverished Native American students get high school diplomas. You obviously care about Native Americans. I think it's blown my mind about this whole debate. Almost no one was talking about breaking another treaty with Native Americans in this debate in the last week. Did that strike you as Attorney General? Are you going to look at the slot revenue deals we had with Native American tribes and think about their rights in all this? Well, I, I think that the, you know, the tribes in eastern Connecticut, they do have uh, an agreement with the state of Connecticut. And I think part of what Attorney General Jepson has said is that if you are going to um, be making changes to that agreement or changing the exclusivity issue, you need to be amending the compact. And you have to do that in partnership with the parties to that compact. I think that that's accurate. And Joanne McCarthy Dukas writes in on Facebook, Chris Matty would make a great AG. Joanne McCarthy Dukas, thank you very much for for listening to Dateline New Haven with Chris Matty. Okay, Time Warner has an $85.4 billion proposed merger with AT&T. What I love about when we think about issues like that, these mergers where there isn't one white hat, black hat, like so the two corporations that dominate our landscape want to combine and they're against other people. And President Trump has come out against that merger. And um, Senator, state, two Democrats, State Senator Bob Duff and Senator State Rep Derek Slapp, want Attorney General Jepson to, be the, to have Connecticut be the first suit, state to file a suit to block the merger. They say, yeah, we don't like Donald Trump, but for different reasons, because Trump is retaliating against 
Time Warner because of um, CNN doesn't give them good coverage. Okay. Although they're great for each other. CNN gets the star ratings <laughs> and Trump gets to bash the media and, and make a lot of hay out of that. But, um, but they're saying that separate from that, they're worried about net neutrality. They think that that merger will, um, because AT&T is the third largest broadband provider in the U.S. and they own DirecTV, which has 20 million subscribers. They feel that if, um, given that Trump administration is trying to repeal net neutrality, which gives all kinds of people equal access to the internet so that you can get mm -hmm. it, everybody can get sites equally, not just who pays up front. Mm -hmm. We get more ideas. They think that this merger would actually create a nightmare scenario for consumers. What do you think about their point? And what do you think about the AG filing that suit? Well, we have one of the most um, talented and respected antitrust divisions in the Attorney General's office in Connecticut um, across the country. Um, and I've worked closely with them. So if, if any... Uh, State Attorney General's office has the resources and the ability uh, to challenge a merger. I think Connecticut does. Traditionally, that has been left to the Justice Department because those cases um, are in right. So, court. is there a need given that the Justice Department is going against this? I, so, I think that it's helpful for Connecticut to stake out a position on these issues. Um, I think uh, if the Justice Department is taking this on, um, they're probably the appropriate party to lead on it. That's not to say Connecticut can't be a partner. Mm -hmm. um, and shouldn't be doing its own assessment of how this would uh, affect Connecticut residents. And I think so that's what appropriate. So what would be your answer to slap and duff? If you were in, would you file a suit? I'd have to take a look at it. I, ha I haven't seen kind of all of the details about that particular merger. As a general it matter... It is really complicated. Stuff that, <laughs> no, seriously, about how the internet even works and net neutrality. I mean, oftentimes, you know, there is a, a very lengthy process that occurs um, before... Um, you know, the Justice Department or a state would file suit to block a merger because there's a lot of diligence to be done in, in understanding precisely what, you know, you think the effects of that combination would be. Yeah. Um, but I do think that whether it's an antitrust or any number of other areas where the federal government is abdicating its responsibility, although perhaps not in this case, that Connecticut does have to step up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess you're right. It is complicated. Will it affect net neutrality? I can't give you an expert's and the, the, the most I care a lot about net neutrality yeah. publishing a web news site, but yeah. And the most immediate threat to net neutrality isn't that merger, it's what the FCC did, <laughs> repealing the net neutrality yeah. uh, rule. So, and, and that is now the subject of litigation. I actually think we have a good chance of winning that one. So Chris Maddy, guns are a big issue right now in the country. AG's right in the midst of that one. There's a proposal by one of your opponents for nomination, William Tong, to ban bump stocks mm -hmm. that quickly turn a gun you bought that's not an AR-15, basically it's an AR-15, is that the right way to say it? I'm not a gun guy. AR-15? Yeah, maybe no, no, that, that, that's what bump stocks It turns do. it from uh, semi-automatic to automatic. Yeah. yeah. Would you agree with him about passing that ban, and what would you specifically do about guns if you were attorney general? I think that the proposed bump stock ban uh, and the proposed ban on ghost guns, uh, both of which the Judiciary Committee is, is uh, considering, um, should be passed. Um, and, you know, to me, it's um, it should really be a no-brainer. You know, the idea that you would have semi-automatic weapons that are easily convertible to automatic. Any other steps you would take? Or are we pretty good in Connecticut with our um, gun control laws? We get held up as a national model. You know, you, you dealt as a federal prosecutor with the one limit we have on our laws is people bringing it in from other places yeah. that you can't buy and you, you brought a case against the legal out-of-state guns coming in. Yeah. What else, if anything, you do with AG? Or is that I mean, you don't want to overpromise? No, well, I think the, the most important thing that we can do, and this may happen, is if the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act comes out of Congress, um, Connecticut needs to be first in line at federal court in New Haven challenging that. And, and just so your listeners know, well, just because that's the seat of the federal yeah. court in, in, uh, <laughs> in Connecticut. But um, the, 
the just so your listeners understand what the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act would do is allow people who come from states with very lax gun laws, no background checks, no permit requirements, no application requirements, no training requirements, to get a gun in their home state and to bring it in Connecticut. And they would not have to comply with our own laws. It would put Connecticut residents at risk uh, and and we would need to sue to block it. Um, so that, I think, is the issue coming around the bend that the Attorney General's office needs to be attuned to. Um, and then I think... You know, Connecticut and other states need to continue to be vocal advocates for universal background checks because one of the reasons that when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, people from South Carolina and Virginia were buying guns down at gun shows down there, putting them in their, in their trunk, coming up to New Haven, parking over in New Hallville and open up their trunk and selling guns out of the back. Uh, and the only way we're going to be able to limit that flow in addition to the enforcement we do, is to make sure that we pass universal background checks. And is there anything you do besides being vocal as AG? Are there limits? To well, and I mean, this is a federal issue. You know, I mean, Congress needs to step up and act, and I hope that they will. Chris Maddie, it's great to get to know you a little bit. I know that your campaign is going full steam ahead for Attorney General. But before we leave, how do you distinguish yourself from your main competitors? William Tong has been on the Judiciary Committee for many years, shares it. Um, he, he brings a real knowledge of state law and especially affects the AG. Claire Kindle has supervised 200 attorneys as the number two at the Attorney General's Office. How do you distinguish yourself against especially those two and why you'd be a better choice for Attorney General nominee? I, I mean, I think, you know, the role of the Attorney General has changed so much um, that right now what is important is that you have a prosecutor uh, who has supervised lawyers in the public interest in federal court on complex multi-jurisdictional investigations. Uh, and that's what I've done. Uh, so, you know, I don't think there's any other candidate in the race who has that kind of experience, which is most necessary right now. And, and that's nothing against them. I, I think they're both great people, but it, it all comes down to what kind of attorney general you want. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Dateline New Haven and making the time. Thanks, Paul. Uh, really, I hope to speak with you further. And uh, so thanks to Chris Manning. Thanks to everyone for listening and for weighing in on Facebook. We're going to take it out with Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. (music) 